What's, what's going to change? What's going to be different? What's going to be better? What do I want to start to do or stop doing? Just how, how is life going to start to reorient itself? Maybe this is big things. It might be small things. I mean, it might be things that are just kind of more goal-oriented, like I want to finish school. I was talking to somebody uh, that said, yeah, I'm, I'm not really into New Year's resolutions, but it's got a couple goals I want to do. I want to finish school or maybe buy a house or start blogging. I mean, it can just kind of be smaller things like that, or not that buying a house is small, but just kind of goal-oriented oriented things, or it might be things that are kind of the deepest things. It might be things that are, man, I've got aspects of my character that I want to change. I want to be a less less impatient person, a more patient person. I want to be more serving and less selfish. I want to, I really want to stop this piece of my life that I keep doing. I mean, it could be character type things. It can be relationship type things. I really want to work on this relationship. This relationship's been broken for a long time, and I want to start to repair this relationship. I really want to put energy here and be a better mom, or be a better dad, or be a better husband, or be a better wife, or be a better friend, or I mean, just some relationship things. There can be spiritual things. How, how are, man, me and God, I want to, I want to have a real relationship with God. These are the times of year that we start thinking about all those kinds of things, whether you're into actual resolutions or not. These are the, just the type of time that we start to think it's the end of one season, the beginning of another season, and all those types of thoughts start coming into our minds. And, and then what happens? I mean, if you've ever made New Year's resolutions or goals at the beginning of a year, what, what generally happens? Often, we just kind of get cynical. Because year after year, things don't work out. Year after year, we try. <sighs> Man, I've tried over and over again, and it just nothing changes. Nothing. Maybe you accomplish some things here and there, but a lot of times, I mean, many people, you reach a certain age in life, and maybe, I mean, unless you are just a, a glutton for punishment, usually what ends up happening is people just start to get cynical, just maybe even despairing. I've tried so many times. Things start off strong and then kind of fizzle out. The classic example of this is people that get their gym membership in January and then they're not even in the gym anymore by February. I mean, I was going to say like April, but more like February or the next week. Um, I won't say if that happened to me last year, but uh, by saying that, I just said that. Um, what happens though is things just kind of fizzle out, right? Things just, they don't, they don't a lot of times get the momentum that we hope to have. We, we don't actually get the traction that we hope to have. And so a lot of times the new year is one of those times that people often get depressed about, actually. And we wonder, why is that? Why do things never really get off the ground? Why do things fizzle why, why sometimes have, have I just kind of given up and just apathetic now and just don't really even care anymore? I mean, wh- what is going on with that? Why so much energy? Why so much gusto with a new year? And then, man, just doesn't feel so hot after a while. I think that's what uh, we need to look at, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I think, ironically, it's because a lot of our focus is actually on resolution, that the new year comes and we have resolve. So we say, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm going to work on these things. I'm going to work on my character. I'm going to work on those relationships. I'm going to work on, I'm going to work on the spiritual part of my life. And I've got this resolve. And so here we go. But we don't actually go deep enough. Resolution, resolve is not deep enough because if we want to get at the deepest parts of change in our life, we want to get at those, those things that really matter. I mean, Again, I'm not talking about just kind of the surface level type goals, but if we want to get at the deepest level of resolution, the biggest changes that we want in our life where we go, man, if I act, if this happened, life would really, it would be different. It would be good. There would be joy. There would be, I would feel different. To get at the deepest level of a resolution, there has to be a deeper level of change than just, all right, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper and I'm going to do it. And this takes us to an idea that the Bible talks about that's not resolution, but confession. See, when the Bible talks about change, and that's really what we talk about when we think about New Year's resolutions, it's, it's change. It's things that we want to see happen in our life change. The, the beginning step, the beginning process of that is not simply to say, 
I resolve to do different. I resolve to be better. I resolve to try harder. But it's to take a step back and say, let's, let's start at a deeper level. Let's, let's start with confession. How the Bible presents us that true resolution begins to happen is beginning with confession. So this is what I want to talk about tonight. And you might think, man, I don't really have anything to confess. I don't really have anything to confess. And that may be true and maybe that's not true. But Martin Luther, one of the great uh, reformers of the Protestant church, said that all of life is repentance. And we could say all of life is confession, which is to say that confession is the perfect way to end something in the perfect way to begin something. And that shouldn't just be an event, but it should be the lifestyle that we live, an always ongoing thing. So this is what we'll talk about tonight. What, what keeps us from confession? How do we actually confess? And why should we? And so maybe tonight you've got something in your mind. Maybe you've already made a list of New Year's resolutions. Maybe you have something in your mind when I say the word confession that starts to stir up. Oh, maybe I'll think about that. But I want all of us to think tonight about New Year's confessions instead of New Year's resolutions. What may be some of those things that to start off the beginning of 2015, to end 2014, would be confessions And then maybe those confessions actually change and transform into resolutions. But let's begin tonight with saying, what are those things that should be confessions for me? Okay? So, first, what keeps us from confession? This is the first question that we will look at tonight. What keeps us from confession? Because many of you may say, yeah, that's a good idea. There's things I want to confess. There's things maybe you've even been convicted by. Maybe tonight will be one of those nights, or maybe a conversation with a friend this week, or maybe something happened even during the holiday season that sort of stirred some things up in you, and, or maybe it's something that's been happening for a long time, and you say, yeah, I like the idea of confession, and yet it's difficult, right? I mean, I, I talk to people all the time that actively, I mean, admittedly, say, yeah, I, I avoid confession. I don't want to confess. So what keeps us from confession? What, what keeps us, even, the thing, even when we know there's things that need to change, there's things that, what keeps us from confession? What keeps us from, from starting this process? Why do we avoid this? And I think there's a handful of reasons that I want you to just think about, and maybe you'll identify with one of these, or all of these, or a couple of these, but just begin to think about what, what is it that keeps me from confession. And maybe there's something in your mind of, yes, this is the thing in my life that 2015 should begin with confession. And yet, why am I kept from doing that? Maybe it's something hidden, or maybe it's patterns in your life. So here's some things. One is this, denial. And denial can be simply this, that we don't even reflect. We don't even actually take the time to look at our life. Maybe, to, maybe right now, as I'm even bringing this up, is one of the times that you've only just begun to think about, what is it that I need to confess? Is there anything I need to confess? Is there anything that has happened in my life? Any sins that I have before God or before others in my life? Maybe we don't even pause to think about it and to reflect and so there's just a denial that there's a problem not because the problem is right in front of our face but because we're not even looking we just don't take the time we don't take the time to reflect to think how's my life going this doesn't have to be just this kind of complete introspection all the time but we often don't pause at all we're just so hurried and so busy and so fast-paced and always connected technologically and relationally and don't ever just go okay how's life going what needs to change where do i need to grow what needs to happen so a lot of times we're kept from confession simply because of a denial that is rooted in not even looking but sometimes it can be an outright denial, which is, no, God, God's fine with this. Maybe you have friends speaking into your life, and maybe um, other people are saying, hey, I think maybe you need to look at this, and no, 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 God's fine with this. This is okay. Or it can be more of just a generic, hey, yeah, okay, maybe it's a problem, but nobody's perfect. Just start to, any, I mean, you, you say, yeah, of course, there's some sort of an issue there, but it's all downplayed. It's all just, yeah, you know, it's, it's an issue, but 
it's not a big issue. It's just kind of this thing that is just there. I'm not a jerk. I'm just, you know, I struggle with being nice. I'm not the nicest person. I'm not, you know, eh, Hitler wasn't very nice. He's worse than I am. And we can always use Hitler as the comparison. So, you know, oh, you know, he killed people. I'm just, no, I'm nobody's perfect. I mean, it, it's, it can be a denial that just makes all the problems in our life seem like, uh, you know, they're just little things. Everybody else's problems are big things, but ours are little things, right? So denial is one thing that keeps us from confession. Another thing that can keep us from confession is a cynicism. This happens a lot of times if you've been a part of the church for a long period of your life, and you feel like, man, I've tried that. I've tried to change. I've tried to grow. I've, I've already tried that, and nothing has changed. Nothing has happened. And so there can just almost be a give up, give in. Like, what, what's the use? Why am I going to confess? Why am I going to, I mean... I've been there, done that, and I'm the same. And so we can just kind of grow hard and just grow cynical and just kind of, I don't really want to, I don't really want to go there because I've already gone there and nothing happened. I'm still the same person. And, and sometimes that even turns into a despairing and, and we're kept from confession because as a substitute for actual confession, we just have self-pity. So we maybe are convicted by something and we feel bad about it. And then that's it. So denial, cynicism, or maybe being a victim. One of the things that can keep us from confession is that we look at our life and we say, life is hard. I mean, life is difficult, whatever, whatever it is for you. I mean, it can be a variety of circumstances, big, intense suffering or lots of little suffering or just whatever it might be. You just say, man, life is hard. And so what happens then at that point, though, is you begin to just view yourself as victim. And so any of the problems that you have internally, any of the parts of your life that should change are kind of just pushed aside because it's, man, life is just hard for me. That's why I do this or that's why I struggle with this or or it's their fault. And if they just loved me better and helped me more and served me better and encouraged me more and and just then it would be and we just see we view life through a lens of. I'm a victim. Things are hard for me. And so then we excuse the areas in our life. Victim fear is a big one that keeps us from confession. Fear of what would happen. What if I did confess that? What would happen? Sometimes this is in marriage. What if I told my spouse this? What would happen? Or, man, I don't want to rock the boat. This was, if everything is going good right now, if I confess, this will rock the boat. Stir, I don't want to stir the pot, rock the boat. I don't want to rock the pot. I don't want to do any of those things. No rocking, no stirring. I just want things to be smooth, right? We, we think of, that would be good. And maybe even right now, this is where you're at. Like, okay, talking about confession, yeah, I was thinking about that, but, but, we just have a list of all the things that will happen if we do that. Consequences, fear. Or one can be this. Well, I'm just going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. So you, this is where you go, yeah, there is a problem. There is a problem, and you know what? I'm going to deal with it. As soon as I get through, and it, it might be something like this. I mean, as soon as I get through this season of my life, then I'll, then I'll look at that. As soon as I get through this, then everything will be okay. You know, right now, I'm just super anxious because work is hard. Or man, I just have a crappy boss and that's why I'm a jerk and that's why I'm irritable. And as soon as that is settled, then I'll be fine. It's just, if I just get through it, then, then I'll be okay. I won't be sinning anymore. There won't be any, I just have to get through this certain period, this certain phase, this certain obstacle, and then things will be okay. So it's just kind of, a, if I just push through, I'm okay. I don't have to confess, I just have to push through. Or, similarly, it's, yeah, this is a problem. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad man. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad father. I'm a lazy employee. I'm a rude uh, worker. And I will change it. I will fix it. I will do better. I will be better. This might be on your list. Be better. Whatever. Be better blank. Do better at being nice to people. I'll just fix it. 
I'll just change. But that still short circuits confession. It's just, yeah, there's a problem, and I'll do better at it. Or finally, I think one of the big things that keeps us from confession, if we're just honest, is simply this. We don't want to change, right? I mean, if we're just honest, whatever, whatever it is for any of us, and I know there's been times in my life where I've said, yeah, I want this to be different, but do I really want it to be different? Do I really want to change here? Do I really want to do that? It's the actual desire in our hearts. I've asked people before, do you really want to change this? And they've said, of course I do. What are you talking about? Yes, really? Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe at the deepest level, I don't actually want to change. C.S. Lewis, Christian author, says this. He said that, some, I'm not giving you an exact quote, but he tells a story and he says that what can happen is that when we become a Christian or just living the Christian life, it can be where we say, hey, Jesus, come into my house. And, and, and we are okay with Jesus beginning to kind of say, you know, you got blue accent pillows, let's go with red accent pillows. You know, hey, let's maybe put some curtains up here. Like change a cut. We're okay with him redecorating, maybe, maybe fixing some problems in the house. Hey, Jesus, there's a leak over here. You know, and yeah, I've known that this part of my life, it's leaky. It's maybe you've never thought like that, but yes, my life is leaky over here. Jesus, please fix the leak. But then, then he starts knocking down some walls. We're sleeping and we hear this boom, 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 hammer going. Jesus, what are you doing? Well, I'm getting rid of that room. What? Yeah, and I'm adding a floor over here, and I'm, I'm that whole area, that's just going to be gone. And we're, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, we want Jesus maybe to kind of be a part of what's going on, but don't want to just say, I want to change. Everything that that brings, everything that has, I want to change. So what keeps us from confession? I think these types of things. Desire, fixing it, fear being a victim, being cynical, denial. These are all the kinds of things that keep us from true resolution, which is rooted first in true confession. These are the types of things that keep us from confession. So, okay, how do we confess? How do we confess then? How do we begin that process? And and to answer that question, I want to look at a story in the Bible that's one of the most classic stories of confession, which has to do with King David. And I'll tell you this story, and then we will read the psalm that King David wrote as his prayer of confession. So if you have a Bible, we're not going to put it up on here tonight. If you have a Bible, or you can have the one in front of you, you can actually take that if you don't have a Bible. Um, And we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is the prayer of confession that David wrote after this story that took place that I'm going to tell you. So here's the story, and because it's a story, we're going to use pictures, because it's story time. So how do we confess? Oh, that's blurry. Um... But that's King David, okay? So if you didn't know what he looked like, he was a really blurry looking guy. So um, how, how do we confess? Let me tell you the story that happened with King David. So King David is the king of Israel. And all his armies are out to battle. And he's on his rooftop deck overlooking the city. He's on his rooftop deck overlooking the city. And one of the houses next to him is the house of one of his best friends. So David, let me, let me give you a little bit of backstory. David, before he was king, was chased and hunted down by the previous king that wanted him dead. But David had a group that the Bible calls his mighty men. And it was about 30 guys. And these guys were David. They traveled around basically kind of on the run from this other king, King Saul, that wanted to kill David. And this is his tight group of friends. They did everything together. They hung out together. They were in it to protect one another. I mean, it was David's mighty men, this group of 30 guys. So one of these guys lives close to David. He can, he can see the house from his rooftop deck. So David's on his rooftop. All the armies are out to battle. And David looks, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba. And ironically, she's taking a bath. And she's, you can't see her. See, this is the real reason it's blurry, but she's right there. She's taking a bath. And David is looking at her. And he watches her. 
And he says, man, she's beautiful. And so David sends for her. And he asks two messengers to go and to to bring her to him. And then as the Bible says, he went into her, which is that they laid together, they slept together. So this is Bathsheba, the wife of one of his best friends. Now, what happens next is, what many movies have been made and what many people have experienced, David gets the text that says, I'm pregnant. Maybe not a text, but actually it could have been a text, just a note form of a text. And it says, I'm pregnant, which is not what David expected from his one night stand. So now what does he do? Because her husband's gone. What are people going to think? People knew that this messenger went to her and brought her to the king. And what happened in there? Now she's pregnant. Okay, so David, smart man, he's the king after all says, I'm going to send for Uriah, her husband. So he calls for Uriah. This is David. That's someone, that's a dog, and that's Uriah. He calls for, no one knows this poor guy's name. He's just the the servant boy. And so he calls for Uriah. And he says, Uriah, come come home from the battle. Come home from the battle. I want to talk with you. So he brings home Uriah under some sort of pretense and talks with him and says, hey, let's talk about these things. And then he says, hey, isn't it great that you're back? You can go sleep with your wife. And Uriah, being an honorable man, says, I will not do that. Because he feels this, my men are out dying on the battlefield. And I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of being with my wife while my men are out dying on the battlefield. So he sleeps on the floor and doesn't go home. David's not very happy because that's not according to his plan. So he brings him a second time and says, Uriah, go home. Go. And Uriah says, no, I'm not. So he says, okay, fine. Come stay at my house then. So he brings him to his house and he throws a party. And he gets him drunk, hoping that he will then go home drunk and sleep with his wife. But Uriah doesn't do it. Falls asleep or passes out something and doesn't go home to his wife. So now David gets a more devious plan. And David tells the captain of his army to kill Uriah. He says that when Uriah, when, you, when Uriah goes back into the battle, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send him into the most difficult part of the battle. That area over there where their warriors are the strongest and the fiercest, I want you to send him over there and send him to the front. Send him to the front and then Everybody go forward and charge! And then everybody pull back and don't tell Uriah what you're doing. And so Uriah, as a faithful soldier, charge! And probably is looking behind, wondering what's happening, but presses forward and is skilled in battle. So then, David thinks he got away with it. He's offed the husband slept with the wife, he will then marry the wife to be able to say, oh yeah, and then we slept together really quick, and look, there's a baby. That's his plan. But God sends David a prophet, Nathan. And Nathan comes to David, and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. And David used to be a shepherd, so he loved shepherds. And he comes to David and he says, hey, David, let me tell you this story. There's this, there's this one shepherd that has all these sheep, any sheep he wants. He's the richest shepherd in town. Then there's another shepherd that's only got one little sheep and he loves this sheep and he eats with this sheep and he plays with this sheep and he hangs out with this sheep and it's his best buddy. What would you do, David, if this shepherd with all the sheep, with anything he wanted, came and stole this guy's one little sheep? And David says, we should kill that man. And Nathan says, that man is you. And David cries. Nathan says, you have sinned. You have taken Bathsheba. You have killed her husband. And God will judge you. And then David writes one of the most beautiful psalms that we have in the Bible. And you may think, I have not killed any Israeli soldiers, so I don't know what this has to do with me. I have not slept with anyone's wife. 
But this psalm that David writes, Psalm 51, if you read the intro to it, it's, it becomes a psalm, a song of corporate worship. It becomes something that the church used and that the, that the, that the church used before Jesus came as a, as a public prayer. Because it's something that gets right at the heart of what confession is. It's something that gets right to the core of what real confession, true confession is. So that it's not just for those that have killed Israeli soldiers and who have slept with other women. It is for all of us who have sinned that should confess. So let me read this psalm and then we will look at how we confess as we, as we see from here. And so I'll read this and if you want to read along, Psalm 51. Here's what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. That's another word for sin. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying that God is right to judge his sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying he was sinful from his very birth, that we are born with a sinful nature. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's saying that God cares about the heart, not just the outward actions of sacrifice. Do good to Zion, that's Israel, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So here's what we see. How do we confess? Here's some things we see from David's prayer. If we can look at some of the worst stuff that's ever been done, adultery and murder and betrayal, and see this prayer of confession, then we can learn for our life, whether it's the worst or the smallest thing in our minds, how to confess. The first thing is this. We need other people. We need other people. David had Nathan that came to him to confront him. Nathan came to David and confronted him. And a lot of times we are either blind to our sin, or we know it's there, but... Until someone says, it's there, you're that man, we hide it, we cover it, we hold it. So we need other people. And God will give us those opportunities. This might be the opportunity for you right now that someone is saying, look, look at it. Opportunities. But first thing is this, we need other people. How do we confess? We need other people to help us. The second thing is this, personally. We confess personally, which means this. We talk to God as a person. We engage with God as as a person. See, God is not an idea. He's a person. And sin is against him as a person. One of the things that David says is, against you only have I sinned. Now, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? And didn't he sin against Uriah? And didn't, yes. But he's saying at the deepest core, at the, at the core of it, God, I've sinned against you because you are the one that made me and you are the creator and it is your law and, it, and you want good for me and I'm going against what you desire and so I'm sinning against you first and foremost. 
See, all sin is first and foremost sin against God, a person. And yet when we sin, many times we don't even think of, this is actually against, I'm doing something against a person. So when we confess, we confess personally, which is to say we, we talk to him as a person. How would you talk if he was standing or sitting right in the room with you? You wouldn't just kind of engage in ritual and, dear Jesus, I want to talk with you today about, you would say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I, I mean, you would talk with him as a person. You may even speak it out loud. I think it could be very helpful when confessing to just speak out loud. Or as David did, to write it out. I mean, the reason that we have this psalm is because David wrote it out. This is where journaling and things of those sort, we sit down and we say, God, I want to talk with you. I've got some things I want to bring to you. I want to confess to you. And we talk with him just as a person, the same way that we would do if, if we had sinned against an actual human being. We would go to them and say, hey, we need to talk. I've got some things I need to tell you. Doesn't God know? Yes, he does know. That's not the point. The point is he still wants to talk with you about them. So we need other people. We need to talk personally with God and then honestly. And honestly means this. We begin where we are. We begin where we are. See, because that might mean this. It might mean that your confession to God starts with some of the some of the things on here that keep us from confession. So your confession might begin with saying something like this. God, I don't really think there's a problem. I'm only talking with you because the pastor said I should talk with you. But I don't think there's a problem. I don't really think it's a big deal, God. Or it might be, God, I, I mean, just you can go down the list of, God, I'm cynical. I don't really want, I mean, I, I just don't think anything's going to happen, but I, but I want to talk with you about it. We just start where we are. Honesty begins with not trying to say, God, I feel so horrible about this, or I feel, it's just, just start with where you are. That, that can mean, God, I don't even want to talk with you right now. I don't really want to talk with you. God, I don't really want to change. But instead of just thinking those things, talk with him about those things. Start wherever you are. Start with honesty. And then starting with honesty also means that we say what it is that we've done. What it is we've done. In, in David's prayer, this, this is in the intro, where, and I don't know how David originally wrote out his text, but it's something that it indicated where in the intro to the psalm it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, that we name what it is that we have done. And David also says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, which is a reference to his murder of Uriah. So we say what it is that we've actually done. Not just, God, I'm sorry, I've kind of been a bad person, but what is it specifically? What have we done? Or what have we not done? What? What's the content that we're confessing? See, to confess honestly is to say, I start with where I am, and then it's to say, here's what's actually happened. I've been a jerk. I've been harsh. I've been selfish. I've been lazy. I've been stingy. I've been greedy. I've been covetous. I've, been, I've, I've stolen things. I've been deceiving. I've lied. I've, I mean, wh whatever it is, we confess what we've done and what we have not done. And, and we also confess the ingrained patterns. Because sometimes when we think of sin, we think of instances, particular things. And if you can't point out a lot of particular things in your life, you may go, oh, man, I'm struggling with this whole idea of confession. Because I can't even look at the past week and see particular things that I did. But a lot of times, sin just becomes patterns of life that filter into everything. Family and friends and work and, and leisure. And it just it, kind of broad things. Things like, I'm, I'm living for myself. But that's kind of hard to pinpoint. Oh, yesterday I was living for myself. At 3.30 I was living for myself. Right? But it's just a pattern that's just become ingrained into my life. I'm a person that is mean-spirited. I'm a person that is, I, I lack forgiveness. And that's just my general disposition. I'm just, I'm very arrogant. But see, those are patterns that it's not necessarily, yeah, 
you know, on Tuesday I was arrogant. It's, it's become patterns of life. So we confess what it is we've done, and then we confess the heart level why we've done it. See, if you read David's psalm, it is filled with heart level. It goes deep, right? I mean, David, David starts and says, have mercy on me, O God, and, and that my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions. What I've done is evil in your sight. I was brought forth in iniquity. My heart needs to be cleaned. I mean, he doesn't just kind of say, yeah, you know, I slept with a girl and I, and I had a guy die in battle. He says, no, man, the very, my very bones are sinful. And this isn't just to grovel. It's because David sees the depth. He sees the why behind the what. He sees, man, my heart is not right before you, God. My heart is not right. It's dirty. So we confess the what, but we confess the why. What, what, what is it in our hearts that has drifted from God? Why have we sinned in the ways that we've sinned? So to confess honestly is to confess the what. It's to confess the why. And then it's this, and this is really important. It's to actually confess. See, if you read David's prayer in Psalm 51, it is very different from how often we can pray. See, David begins his prayer with this line, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. He actually confesses, and yet a lot of times, here's what our prayers sound like. And I'll speak as if I'm David here. Our prayers sound like something like this. God, I was looking at this other woman. I slept with her and I killed him. God, help me. Help me to be faithful and not sleep with other women. God, help me not to take what is not mine. God, strengthen me so that I would not murder my soldiers. God, this is a a crazy thing that I did. It was just a a one-time thing. I'll never do it again. God, I don't know why I did it. That's, That's not who I am, God. That's outside of my character. God, help me to be better. God, help me to be stronger. God, help me to be more loving. God, help me, help me, help me. God, I'm not like that. We reassert our goodness. We reassert our record. And we ask God for help, which is not bad to ask for help. That's good to ask for help. We need God's help. But do you see how David's prayer is so different from that? It doesn't, it's not appealing to his past record. It's not appealing to how this is a one-time crazy thing that happened, how it's not truly who he is. And it's not even filled with help me, help me, help me, help me, which is just saying my effort, my effort. It's saying, God, have mercy on me. I've sinned. What I've done is wrong. Do you see that? That's actually confession. It's actually confession. So how do we confess? We confess. We need other people. We do it personally. And we do it honestly. With the what, the why, and actual confession. Now finally. What happens when we confess? Or why should we confess? You can think about it in both those ways. Why, why should we confess? What, what motive? What, what happens? And I think confession is a beautiful thing. I don't think anyone would read Psalm 51 and not be awed by just the, the beauty of it. What happens when we confess? Why confess? And there's internal benefits, there's social benefits, and there's benefits with us and God. And, and here, let me, let me list them off. Internally, if you have not confessed, you carry around a burden. David, David talks about it in different ways as, as he goes through his psalm. One of the ways he talks about it is that there's this stain. So it's like as if you're wearing some clothes and they're just stained and you just walk around with that on you and you see it and you know it's there and maybe you try to hide it and cover it, but you, it's, you just, it's ever before you, as David said, which means it's burdensome, it's heavy. You may feel the shame of it, you may feel the weight of it, you may feel the dirtiness of it, David says. And yet when we confess, what happens is there's joy. 
And there's freedom. There's, a, there's an experience of I've been washed. I've been cleaned. I don't have to worry about that stain anymore. I mean, you've had, I've had, maybe you're a cleaner eater than I am, but I mean, especially anytime you wear white, you've had a stain, right? And you, you, it's embarrassing, especially because it always happens right as you're going to like go into a party or something. And then, yep, I've got spaghetti on me or whatever it is. I always eat spaghetti before parties. <laughs> you guys don't do that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's this stain that's then removed and it's gone. And then you have this experience of, I'm clean. I don't have shame. I don't have the burden. Sin, sin blinds our minds so that we can't even see clearly. And when confession happens, we have clear sight. We have joy. I mean, David says that when he confesses, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, that, that there's freedom, there's joy, there's, there's a feeling of life. I mean, many times people walk around just kind of feeling dry. I know many Christians that feel, I'm just dry. Just, I feel distant from God, I feel apathetic. Confession breathes life and joy. That's internally. Socially, Here's what confession does. David, David says at the very end of his psalm, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And he begins to talk about how when he confesses, there will be this experience in the community of joy and delight and goodness and God's pleasure in the community. And the rest of the Bible speaks the same way, that when there's confession, it affects our relationships and makes them healthier. This is, of course, true if that's against the person that you've sinned against that you go to them and confess and that relationship then gets stronger and it gets built in unity when there's real confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. Sometimes what happens is people sin against one another and then go, okay, we just got to get past this. Let's just, all right, that wasn't good. Let's now just move on. Or I did that. I shouldn't have done that, but let's just move on. But it keeps them at a distance. But confession and then forgiveness builds reconciliation. It builds a deeper experience of intimacy and oneness in community. But even if it's not against the person, I've talked with people who have said this, man, I've, when, as I've confessed with God, and I experience His grace, and I experience His forgiveness, you know what that does to me? That means when I'm around other people, I, I want to forgive them. And I want to, and it's okay if I see their sin. It doesn't bother me because I, I, I have grace towards them because grace was given to me as I confess. And it helps build community. Because you cannot be a distant person. You can't be an unforgiving or judgmental person if you believe I've confessed and I've received forgiveness. And that means all the relationships around you, they say, hey, yeah, I'm a sinner. And you go, that's great. So am I. And I receive forgiveness. And it bonds people actually closer. It has an effect on the community. And then, of course, with God. When we confess, our relationship with God changes. See, before confession, the way that we can feel with God is distant. And God feels far. I don't feel close to God. Or dry, I said that. I can feel just dry and apathetic with God. Or maybe unsure. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what God thinks about me. Does God really care for me? Does he really love me? Does he, does he delight in me? I know God is love, and so yeah, of course he's supposed to love me, but does he, does he look at me and go, man, I, I delight in you? We can be really unsure. We can be really unsure because when, when we think about going to God to confess, we believe God is standing there waiting. Waiting for us to come to him. And, and so confession is not something that we are eager to do because our picture is God, is God is waiting. He's waiting to scold us, to lecture us, to judge us, to shame us. He is righteous and he is holy. And if I were to go to him and say, God, here's what I've done wouldn't be a delightful experience because that's the image that we have of God. Maybe that's because that's how your parents were. You went to your parents anytime you knew that look, that face, that posture. 
And that's what we think God is doing. So we don't, we don't run to confess to God because we think that that's God's posture towards us. That that's God's waiting towards us. And here's the truth. That should be the case. God should judge us. God should mock us. God should shame us. God should, I mean, uh, the result of our sin should be that we are cast away from God. The result of our sin should be that God says, how could you have done this? The result of our sin is that we should feel the full weight of judgment. The result of our sin should be death. And I didn't tell you this part of the story, but here's what happened, and this is harsh. But Nathan tells David, sin, the judgment for your sin will be the death of your son. The judgment for your sin, David, will be the death of your son. And that can seem harsh to us, and that, that is what happened. David's son died as a baby. That can seem very intense and very harsh to us because we think, oh, sin's bad, but does it deserve death? The death of his son. So when we think of coming to God, we think the judgment, the death, But here's what happens. God, instead of giving us death, gave us the death of his son. So we don't get what David got. That's amazing. That we, like David, deserve death and the death of our son. But instead, God says, yes, that is the penalty. That is what should happen. That is the weight you should feel of your sin. And instead, I give you the death of my son. Now, now what does that mean for confession? That means if God would say the death of a son is the penalty, then what's left? What's left? What penalty is left? What judgment is left? What shame is left? What abandonment is left none so that then when we can come to god in confession he's not waiting to bring judgment to us anymore because he already gave us the very death of his son so why does he want us to confess then simply for us to experience the joy and the gladness and his presence see that's amazing that that I mean, if you believed, if you believed that God's posture towards you was simply, you have already been completely 100% forgiven, why would we not run to him and confess? I mean, if we knew he wouldn't shame us and scold us, and and we knew that he's already said, yeah, I've already dealt with that, but I still want to talk with you about, I mean, there would be nothing to hold us back. Because Jesus already took all of that. Instead of God giving us death, he came into this world and died himself. And he took that penalty on himself. And he took that punishment on himself. So that means when we walk towards God in confession, we are not going to him hoping we can make things right and settle. He's already made things right in Jesus. And in fact, it, is, it isn't even so much that we go towards God in confession, but that God has come towards us. See, the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, let's talk. Let's talk. Nathan came to David. God came to David. And God has come to us in Jesus and says, I'm coming after you. So God's not waiting in judgment. If you're a Christian, all the judgment's already on Jesus. So why do we confess? Because internally we experience joy and freedom. Socially we experience a depth of community that we have not had before. And with God, we then experience a depth of his grace and mercy. See, you think at the end, you think at the end of this with David, how how do you think he felt with God? Bad or good? Good, right? See, we often think that the path to God is through our goodness. If I do a good job, 
If I have a good week, then God will be favorable with me. But the true path to God is through our sin. Meaning, as we sin and we admit that and we confess that and we speak that, we experience how gracious he is towards us, how merciful towards us he is, how much he is the God of our salvation. The joy of, I mean, when's the last time for you that you experienced the joy of your salvation? If it's been a while, maybe it's because you don't confess. So you then don't experience how sweet his grace, how sweet his forgiveness, how sweet his mercy. And that should be all of life. What would 2015 be like for you if it was began in honesty? That what was hidden was brought out in confession to others, to God. What would 2015 be like if it was began in freedom and in joy? And then you know what happens? The resolutions actually begin to happen. Because some of the core issues, the core heart issues have been dealt with. I'm not saying if you confess, you're going to lose 30 pounds, okay? I'm not saying that. But what happens is, if you read the end of David's psalm, he says, when you do this to me, then I'm going to tell other people, and I'm going to, I'm going to sing about it, and I'm going to tell other people about how good you are. I'm going to live my life with purpose and intentionality to tell other people how good you are and how, other, how awesome you are. I'm going to live my life on mission to show how good you are, God. See, and that begins to filter through action when confession has actually happened. What would 2015 be like if it was begun with confession? It's not a scary thing. It's a beautiful thing because Jesus has already made it. I'm pointing here because when we take communion, <laughs> Jesus isn't standing right here. When we take communion, we remember that Jesus had his body broken and his blood shed so that we can now come to God freely. See, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus for the first time and experience then reconciled relationship with God. And if you are a Christian, you can come to God freely. He's not waiting to judge you in any way because he already took it all on himself. I know we're going to sing in just a moment. Jesus paid it all. Any, any shame you feel, any burden, you, you can come to God freely because he's already dealt with it. So that means confession's a path to joy. It's not a burden. It's not a hard thing. It's a beautiful thing because it brings you closer to Jesus. Let me pray for us and we will then end our time in singing and taking communion and in giving tithes and offerings. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we can come to you freely, that we, we do not have to be afraid to enter into your presence. We don't have to be afraid to confess sin to you because you've already taken care of the sin. God, thank you that that's a reality, a beautiful reality. God, I pray that in this room would confess sin, that we would confess to you what we have done and what we have not done and why we have done it and why we have not done it and that we would come to you personally and honestly and confess. And if there's things that need to be confessed to people that we would confess to one another. But Lord, let us even now begin confessing to you and begin 2015, Lord, with confession that we may experience your grace and the joy of our salvation. In your name, Jesus. Amen.